Hello, and welcome to the August 2016 Harvard Medical Labcast. This podcast is brought to you by Harvard Medical School's Office of Communications in Boston. I'm Stephanie Duchin. And I'm Rick Rollo. So Rick, tell us what today's abstract is about. Well, it's about research being done on oocytes, which are immature egg cells, and the topic inspired me to write a couplet. Would you Uh, like to hear it? I'll I'll take that as a yes. (laughs) Uh, Here goes. The term amyloid is a source of unease because it's often connected to some brain disease. (laughs) But within the germ egg cell called oocyte, it's needed to keep organelles packaged tight. (laughs) Very nice, Dr. Seuss. Thank you very much. Okay, and then uh, in today's conversation, you'll be taking us inside the mind of Bapu Jenna. Tell us more. Yes, so his name is Anupam Jenna, but he goes by Bapu. And he is, now I wrote this down so I would get it right, the Ruth L. Newhouse Associate Professor of Healthcare Policy here at HMS, um, which basically means he's an economist and a physician, and he asks very interesting questions. So we asked him about how he comes up with those questions that tend to investigate what people think of as common knowledge. You mean things that challenge common knowledge? Well, sometimes what he finds agrees with what people think, and sometimes it doesn't. Okay. Uh, And he told us things like what was the weirdest place that he's ever come up with an idea, and how to shift your mindset from solving a problem that's given to you to finding a problem to solve. Sounds great. Let's take a listen. So, Bapu, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Now, you have quite a collection of studies to your name, and the theme that seems to tie them all together is that you are examining what seems to be common knowledge. People assume that, for example doctors are more likely to be divorced than people in other professions. Or, well, of course, when medical students head into the clinic for the first time as interns, there's a so-called July effect where patients do worse. And you actually look at whether these things are true. Is is that how you think about the kind of work that you do? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, the, the general rule of thumb that I have for a question is, um, is not actually whether or not a physician or a health policy researcher would be interested in knowing the answer. I want to answer questions that everybody would be interested in knowing the answer and that they'd understand why why it is uh, that I'm looking into that question. Mm-hmm. So how do you choose a specific question to look at then? Well, I have a dartboard, and I throw darts, <laughs> and I see what sticks. Now, uh, I think there's a few few criteria. So the first is it has to meet that general interest criteria. Uh, two is that there has to be uh, detailed uh, enough data that allows you to answer the question in a rigorous way. And and the third is actually sometimes the most challenging is that there has to be a credible way of trying to answer the question. Mm. And what I prefer to do is what many economists try to do is is find some source of natural randomization or natural variation that occurs in the real world. The term that we sometimes use is natural experiment Mm -hmm. to try to uncover some of these relationships that might be otherwise difficult to analyze. So in order to find out whether something is true or not, right, you need to have evidence to look at. Correct, yeah. Um, and then what do you do once you've identified a question and you found a good source to study? Well, first we're thankful because, I, you know, I'll tell you, out of every, every study that you hear about or that, um, that we publish, there's probably six or seven that we were far more interested in that we thought were um, 
much more promising that that doesn't actually they don't actually pan out hmm. and so we're always grateful when we're able to find something that makes sense for which the evidence is is solid enough to make some conclusions and again which interest people at large and what are some of the things that you've looked at lately uh so lately um we've looked at I'll, I'll tell you actually some things that we've we've updated since some last work that we published about a year ago as well as some things that we're working on Okay. right now that, that have not been published. So about a year and a half ago, we did a study which looked at what happened to patients who were hospitalized uh, during dates of major national cardiology conferences. Right. And the idea w- there was that this is a point in, point in the year when if a patient has a heart attack or cardiac arrest or something severe in it from a cardiac perspective and they're hospitalized, they may get exposed to a different set of doctors than they would other- otherwise see because those doctors are away at conferences. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we wanted to understand is, well, what, what impact does that change in the composition of doctors have on patient outcomes? And what we found was that patients actually did substantially better during the dates of those meetings. Patients did better when the highly skilled cardiologists were all at society meetings? Exactly, yeah, it, and which, was a, which was a very paradoxical finding for us. And the other fact that we found was that rates of a particular procedure called uh, PCI, which is uh, percutaneous coronary intervention. It means stenting of the blood vessel that supply the heart. Mm-hmm. We found that rates of that procedure fell by about a third. And we interpreted that to mean that in that setting, that we might be doing too much of these procedures otherwise. Uh, that is to say on non-meeting days. And we thought that that was a proxy for the overall intensity of care that was being provided outside of these meeting dates and that could maybe be the mechanism. Hmm. So that was an old paper, an old finding, and we've kind of reinvestigated that issue and are trying to understand a little bit more about who are those doctors that attend these meetings. And uh, we've tried to do so in a, in a way that I think is innovative. And, and that is by looking at whether or not a cardiologist is billing Medicare during those dates. So it's difficult to get attendee roles at the meetings. So otherwise we could get it the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology to give us a list of attendees and then we could look in the Medicare data and see whether or not those cardiologists' practice patterns are different, the ones who attend meetings and the ones who don't. Mm-hmm. But without that data, how do, you, how do you look at this? Well, what we've tried to do is basically look into the claims data and see whether a cardiologist bills Medicare on those particular dates of the meetings versus not, and then look at the characteristics of those, of those doctors. And what we find is that the doctors are about the same age, the meeting doctors and the non-meeting doctors, about 50 years old, about the same proportion are men, so about 95% are men. Uh, but what what is different is that the doctors who do not bill during the meeting dates, meaning the doctors who are likely to be attending these meetings, mm-hmm. they have three times as many publications, twice as many grants and clinical trials. But the clincher is that they also do a lot more stenting across the course of the year. So right. these are not just doctors who are doing all research and no clinical work. They're doing a lot of both. And the way we interpret those findings is that it could be that these are doctors who are very procedurally focused and, uh, and very talented. And when they see patients, they'd be more inclined to use those procedures. And, and um, you know, it, it may happen in a place where the benefits no longer outweigh the risks of the procedure. Mm-hmm. So that's our current thinking on that issue, which is kind of a, a reinvestigation of a, of a study that we did a while ago, but linking it to new data. Are these the sorts of things that it wouldn't be possible or ethical to structure as like a randomized clinical trial? Yeah, not only would it be unethical to do it, it would be very costly, very time-consuming, 
and and that's exactly why I try to look for natural experiments to try to right. try to uncover some of these relationships that are happening in the real world because of just random exogenous things that take place that we otherwise wouldn't think about. It must be tricky then to figure out what is going on without being able to control all the variables, right? You're you're making deductions and assumptions, but how do you then check whether those are correct? Yeah, that's tough. So I'll give an example of a, another paper that we're working on now. Um, my wife ran a, a five-mile race about a month ago, started at the seaport, World Trade Center, mm-hmm. and the route passed through Mass General Hospital. And my daughter and I, who's 19 months old, we tried to go watch the race near Mass General, and we couldn't get there because the route was blocked off. Huh. Uh, Several hours later, when I told that to my wife, she said, wow, I wonder what happens when uh, patients need to get to the hospital. These routes are all closed. How mm-hmm. do ambulances get there? And that, that, I thought, was a really interesting question and a question that we could look at in the same kind of data. Uh-huh. And what we've done is we've looked at uh, um, rates of mortality for patients who are hospitalized on the days of marathons. <laughs> we've looked at about 10 marathons over 10 years. Uh, so these are 10 cities. And then we compare the mortality on those dates to the surrounding identical dates. So if the marathon was on a Monday in Boston, we compare it to the identical five Mondays before and the five Mondays after. I assume excluding the infamous Boston Marathon. Exactly, excluding that. And and also you'd want to worry about whether or not you're picking up mortality from people who are running marathons. Mm -hmm. That, That turns out to be a really, really, really rare event. But we focus on Medicare, and we focus on people in Medicare who are generally sick. Okay. And so they are not running um, marathons. And what we find is that mortality on the marathon dates is about 10 to 15% higher than on the surrounding dates. And you ask, well, how do you take that and establish some sort of cause and effect relationship there? Because you, you need to know that those patients are similar. Mm-hmm. Because it could be that the patients who are hospitalized during the marathon days are just different. They're at higher risk of mortality. And the way you do that is you just show on a series of characteristics of these patients, their age, their sex, their race, what chronic conditions do they have, why were they hospitalized, uh, what medications do they take if you have Mm -hmm. that kind of data, and show that the characteristics of these patients are essentially identical between the marathon and the non-marathon days. And that's the type of evidence that we try to bring to our research because in, in many observational studies, one looks at the treatment and control groups in the study and they, and they look clearly different. Mm-hmm. And, and through various types of analyses, those differences are, are accounted for, but I would argue that they are rarely fully accounted for. And what really should be the gold standard in, in this type of research is what is the gold standard in randomized controlled trials? You have to show that there is evidence of randomization mm-hmm. if you want to try to uncover real relationships in the data as opposed to uh, just associations. And, and to answer that question, we see that these patients are identical. Now, when you come up with an answer after doing one of these studies that seems to run against what people think is true, how do you then deal with the fallout? The fallout meaning... Um, I don't know. Do people push back? Do people... Well, people always push back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, people push back, and uh, I think that the, the people who push back uh, sometimes don't fully understand the mechanisms um, that, that we're, we, we've tried to, to use to kick the tires, if you will, mm-hmm. or we haven't done a good job explaining it, one or the other. But in, in each one of these studies, when you have this counterintuitive finding, 
and you're and you're making rather bold statements about something causing something else, mm-hmm. you really have to be thorough about the types of analyses that you do to make sure that what you're finding is not just some uh, spurious association. So uh, in the cardiology example case, what we showed was that mortality for non-cardiac conditions did not change. So if you think that there's something different about the hospitals during these cardiology meeting dates that influences mortality overall, then you would expect to see that mortality for uh, gastrointestinal hemorrhage or for hip fracture would also go down, and we don't find the evidence of that. Uh So there's different tools like that that you can use as an economist to, to really try and say, we don't just think this is an association that we're observing here. We think that this is a cause and effect relationship. How did you come to develop all of the skills and thought processes to come up with question development and ways to analyze this kind of information? So I, I think a lot of it's luck. I mean, I'll, I'll say I, I mean, I'm really lucky. Um, and two is that uh, the background and my ongoing experiences help a lot. So I have a, a PhD in economics, which is extraordinarily helpful for thinking about these sorts of questions because economics, among many other things, really prides itself on being able to take the study designs very rigorously and, and try to understand what causes what, mm-hmm. and as opposed to saying what is associated with something else. And so that background really helps a lot. And as important as that is the, the fact that I'm able to work clinically uh, helps a lot because it helps me come up with questions. It helps me understand what are the types of outcomes that we should be looking at, what are the ways in which the study designs could be improved mm-hmm. just based on what you see clinically. Um, so those things help a lot. And then the third thing, which I think is really something that I've learned over the last couple of years, which I, I never really fully appreciated, is that the, the process by which one comes up with ideas is, is, uh, can be an active process. How do you mean? So what I mean by that is the following, is that when you take a class in college, uh, let's say it's a math class or a physics class, mm-hmm. your assignment may be what's called a problem set. It's a mm-hmm. set of problems that you have to turn in at the end of the week. And you can get very good at learning how to solve problems. Mm-hmm. That's a different set of skills than learning how to come up with problems. Uh-huh. And the same kind of systematic approach that one would use to learn material and to answer questions, it seems to me that that same type of approach could be used to come up with questions. So one thing that I, that, uh, I try to do with my graduate students and students, it's sometimes limited by time, but we try nonetheless, is say, okay, let's come up with five ideas every three or four days. And and then among those that seem even remotely interesting, talking through how you would actually uh, carry out that project. And, you know, I think that that's extraordinarily useful because it forces you to learn how to think creatively. So what is fun for you about doing this kind of work? The, I think the, the, the most fun aspects of the work are the 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 thrill that you get when you come up with a question and you start to analyze it and pieces of the puzzle start aligning with what you thought or hoped um, mm-hmm. they would show. How and often does that happen? That happens probably maybe one out of five times. Some, actually, maybe like, that's not that bad. It's not that bad, yeah. If you're picking good questions, it's, it's, it's great because at the end of the day, all that matters is what your successes are, mm-hmm. not, uh, uh, not your failures. But, I mean, it's an, it's an exhilarating feeling to have a great idea um, or to listen to someone else have a great idea, to be in a seminar or, or a meeting, and to hear someone go up there and say something where you think to yourself, wow, I wish I had that idea. That feels good. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and then to see how they think through the problem, it's, it's really a, a, a rewarding feeling. And the other part of it is that I'm very fortunate that I have a chance to work with a lot of different people with varying experiences. Some are economists, some are physicians, some are statisticians, and uh, everybody has a unique perspective mm-hmm. on it. Everybody has different experiences that are really helpful in, in kind of driving the, the question and the approach to answering the question. And so those two aspects of, of the job are the most fun seems like that's how a lot of research progress is being made these days, right? Is bringing in people who have different backgrounds and different approaches. Yeah, I think so. And the other thing that I love about research is um, um, writing papers for journals and mm-hmm. responding to reviewer comments. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. <laughs> that, that we could all do about. <laughs> and what's the most challenging part? That, 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 that's, <laughs> that's the most challenging part. What's the second most challenging no, part? I think, that, I think the challenging part is... is um, one that is to an extent modifiable, and that is when you're really optimistic about a question. It seems like there is promising initial evidence to support what you're doing, but it doesn't all fit. And ultimately, the fragmentation in the findings is large enough that you can't come up with a coherent story, mm. and and you just have to drop it at that point. And that's a difficult thing uh, to do, not only because you like the idea, you become attached to it, but also at some point you start to convince yourself that, you know what, the things that are consistent with the story, that those truths are more valid than all the things that are inconsistent. And that's a challenge I think any researcher has to has to deal with because at the end of the day, what gets published is uh, the best of what you've done. Mm-hmm. One never sees all the analyses that didn't work out, mm-hmm. um, uh, which is challenging. But I think the hardest part is letting go. Yeah. This is probably an exercise in frustration for you and for people listening who want to know if these questions have answers. But um, what are some of the questions that you have either tried to look at in the past or are wrestling with now that don't seem to have enough evidence that you can really dig into what's going on? Yeah, that's a, that's a terrific question. Let me give you an example from graduate school about a project that I thought was really interesting but didn't pan out. Okay. You'll see why. Well, many people will say that uh, if a man grows up with two or three sisters, that he views women differently than if he grew up with two or three brothers. Uh-huh. And the idea is that you maybe grow more sympathetic to women or that the, the characteristics that we typically assign to women in terms of personality traits would spill over into the, into mm-hmm. the, into the man. And um, so we looked at that. We, we found that men with two sisters or two brothers are equally likely to be divorced, which you might think wouldn't be the case if men somehow treat women differently or better if they had two sisters. You might find lower rates of divorce. We okay. didn't see that. We also looked at another even more extreme measure, which is rates of sexual assault. Mm. Again, um, the, the hypothesis being that if uh, men are better, uh, treat women better because they had two sisters growing up, mm. you would see lower rates of sexual assault. Sure. We didn't find any evidence of that. So the conclusion I drew from that was that if there is an effect of growing up with a female sibling versus a male sibling, it certainly doesn't materialize in these really big measures of uh, mm-hmm. that we looked at. Is that not in itself a finding? It, it could be, but it, it's a terrific question. It all depends on what people think is the straw man, I guess that's the term mm-hmm. that sometimes people use. Is If it were conventional wisdom that that were true, then I think that's a, a finding that people would be interested in. If it's not conventional wisdom, but it's something that you hear people once in a while say, it probably doesn't meet the threshold mm-hmm. for for trying to, to publish it. And uh, we're actually doing some related work right now, which looks at uh, using a lot of big data 
to try and understand whether or not uh, adults who have males children versus female children have different life expectancies. So mm. the, the the kind of conventional wisdom may be that girls are more likely to take care of their parents than boys. Or boys stress out their parents and or boys send them to an parents. early grave. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so we're looking at that at that now. And uh, if you don't if you don't hear if the study isn't published, you'll know it didn't work. <laughs> Well, if it is published, I look forward to seeing what you find. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, do you have any advice for people who might be considering thinking about things the way that you think about them? Yeah, I think um, you know the what I say to the residents, and I'm not that far from residency, so it sounds a little bit premature for me to say this, but I'll <laughs> say it anyway, is that you see these things happening around you all the time. And it just might not occur to you that there is an interesting research question uh, that is there. And, and I would say, you know, look around you. These things are all there. You just have to train your mind to think like that and, and, and obviously be interested in those sorts of questions. Right. Not everybody is. What's the weirdest place you've picked up an idea from? Oh, <laughs> the weirdest <laughs> place I picked up an idea. I remember it specifically. I was at University of Chicago. I was in my second year of uh, my Ph.D., and like any good PhD student, I was um, on the internet. <laughs> and so I used to look up uh, articles on Yahoo News. You know, a lot of people read New York Times, Washington Post, mm-hmm. The Economist. I, I actually like to read things like Yahoo News because it just tells you what random people are thinking. And there's, <laughs> who knows what's published there, to be honest. And uh, in that article, I saw something about Viagra and uh, STDs. There's just some article that was happened to be talking about Viagra and happened to be talking about STDs, but wasn't linking the two. And uh, what what I took from that was, huh, is there a question here? And if you started to look at the CDC data, what you'd see was that at that time, STD rates were growing, um, going up among the elderly. Mm-hmm. And it was around the same time that drugs like Viagra had been introduced. And so you can put two and two together and, and understand <laughs> why those two might be linked. And... Um, you know, we used a large insurance data set and, and looked at people who use Viagra and found that among those people, uh, rates of STDs went up shortly after use. And um, so that was the strangest place I saw something, <laughs> Yahoo News. So number one, keeping your eye out for questions. Number two, knowing how to formulate a good problem, like you said before. Number three, having enough evidence to really investigate a question. Number four, having thoroughness of mind and skill sets to really examine whether what you're seeing is association or causation. What else? What else goes I, into I all of this? I couldn't have said it myself, better <laughs> myself. I would say, uh, wait, did you end on number four or number five? I think that was four. Four. I'd say number five is is um, uh, be prepared and know when to cut projects early. That's a, that's a challenging one. Know when to let go. When do you let go? I know you started to talk yeah. about this before. Uh, I mean, you, it, well, it also depends on what else is going on. If there's nothing else going on, you can hold on for a This is almost <laughs> like a relationship, it seems like. Um, when there's nothing else going on, you can hold on for a longer time. But when there's other competing projects, other competing responsibilities, I would let go faster. But whenever something in the data, either itself, um, the, the analysis doesn't all line up as you want it to. Let's say there's four sets of analysis that you think are critical to showing... Uh, Uh, what you want to show. Mm -hmm. If two out of four of them aren't lining up, that's bad. Three out of four is lining up, that's good. And so that's kind of a threshold I would use. If half the stuff that I want to show is not not, Mm -hmm. uh, lining up properly, then I would would throw it out. And the other thing that to let go is 
when the data itself is perceived to be of poor quality. Mm -hmm. uh, because when you, when you look at a lot of different areas, you have this problem of entering spaces where you may not be the expert. And there may be knowledge about certain databases that um, you don't know about. Right. So some data that you might think would be terrific and high quality turns out that an expert in the field would tell you that it's horrible quality. Mm. And um, so when you find out that that's true, learning how to, to, to let go and say, you know what, let me not try to change this. It was a good idea, but that's what it was. It was a good idea. Right, because I can imagine you can do some serious damage if you publish results that are based on faulty premises yeah, or data. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. All right, what else haven't I asked you? Uh, I think it's my favorite color is blue. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that's it. All right, well, thanks for giving us a glimpse inside your head. Yeah, thank you. I look good. forward to seeing what you've got next. Yeah. <laughs> and now for this month's abstract. Sometimes the names of structures we find within ourselves sound kind of poetic, like the cusp of Carabelli and the islets of Langerhans and... The subject of today's abstract, Balbiani bodies. Balbiani bodies are found in oocytes, which are immature egg cells. What they do is to keep mitochondria, proteins, and other important cell stuff in a tight package while the cell is dormant. It does this without a membrane like the cell nucleus has. When the oocyte eventually matures into an egg, the package loosens and its contents disperse within the cell. In the lab of Timothy Mitchison here at Harvard Medical School, Elvan Boak and colleagues studied Balbiani bodies in frog oocytes. It turns out that frog oocytes are often studied to learn about human fertility. Boak wanted to find out what kept the Balbiani bodies together, so she pulled the structures from a collection of oocytes, not an easy feat, and analyzed them. She found that the frog's Balbiani bodies were mostly made of a protein called exvilo. This was the first reported instance of a cell using a protein to create a compartment that's pretty cool. Exvilo clumped together to form a network of amyloid fibers. Amyloids are often associated with neurodegenerative diseases, like ALS and Alzheimer's, so they don't have the best reputation. Here, though, they perform a necessary function. In addition to learning more about Balbiani bodies themselves, Boak hopes researchers will learn what causes the amyloid structures to break apart when the oocyte matures. And that could lead to treatments for those amyloid-related neurodegenerative diseases. This podcast is a production of Harvard Medical School's Office of Communications. Thank you for listening. To learn more about the research discussed in this episode, or to let us know what you think, visit hms.harvard.edu slash podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at HarvardMed, or like us on Facebook. 